Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, on the homeland of the Métis and historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. My name is Michael Welch. What follows is a special presentation by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, the country's diplomatic aid intelligence and military policies are very much at odds with what the citizenry believes it to be. The role of the Institute is to try to bridge the gap between government policy and public perception. Over the last several months, CFPI has been featuring public talks online on different subjects where the myth and the reality of Canada's true face to the world are distinct. On today's program, we convene a panel discussion which took place on April 3, 2021, on the eve of the 72nd anniversary of the founding of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. The name of the conversation was, Why Canada Should Leave NATO. Panelists include Margaret Kimberly from the Black Alliance for Peace, Professor Paul Robinson from the University of Ottawa, Belgian peace activist Ludo de Brabender, and scholar Tamara Lawrence of Canadian Voice of Women for Peace. They will discuss the need to leave a nuclear-armed alliance that has drawn Canada into wars in Libya, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia, as well as recent military missions in Iraq and Latvia. This was a discussion hosted by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Bianca Mugieni is the moderator. She's an activist and journalist and the director of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, whose site is foreignpolicy.ca. Here again is Bianca Mugeni and her panelists, hosted today on the Global Research News Hour. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so grateful to our panelists for being here. Um, we are so grateful to you at home uh, who are tuning in. We've been really looking forward to this event. I'm delighted to be hosting this critical discussion um, with Margaret Kimberly, Tamara Lawrence, Luna de Brabander, and Paul Robinson. Um, my name is Bianca Vigeni. I'm with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Um, we're the organizers of today's event. Um, and we wanna offer thanks as well to our co-sponsoring organization, World Beyond War, World Beyond War, a global nonviolent movement to end war and establish a just and sustainable peace. Um, so please find out more about the terrific work uh, that they do. And perhaps Rachel, Rachel Small, who's helping with in the background, can, uh, can uh, put a link there for folks to find out more about World Beyond War. We're also very grateful to uh, the support of the Regina Peace Council, as well as the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace, VOW, um, who are sponsoring this event as well. So before we begin, I want to acknowledge that many of us are gathered here today on, uh, on Indigenous land. Um, I'm speaking to you all from Montreal or Georgiage, which is situated on the traditional territory of the Ganyangehaga, a place that has long served as a site of meeting and exchange among First Nations. Um, so it's amazing to see this turnout. Um, there were uh, nearly 500 registrants for the event, which is phenomenal. Um, we're now live streaming uh, to Facebook as well, as I said. So if you have any pals that want to join, you can let them know that they can watch at facebook.com slash Canada policy. 
and I'll, I'll put that link in the chat as well. So before we begin, um, a bit of housewarming for folks. Um, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, I can see lots of people are posting in the chat, which is wonderful. Um, hi, Colin. Uh, and uh, so I just want you to, you know, we'd love to hear from you, but as always, please keep your comments civil, cordial, and free from racist, sexist, or otherwise harmful commentary. Um, but let us know where you're tuning in from. And um, after our speakers give their introductory remarks, we're going to be opening up to questions from the audience. So please post your questions in the Q&A box, um, and we're going to get to as many of them as we can, time permitting. So again, my name is Bianca Bajeni. I'm here representing the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, which is an organization that challenges unjust foreign policy measures and aims to bridge the gap between the perception and reality of Canada's role in the world. The CFPI also works to oppose the racism embedded in Canadian foreign policy. So you can find out more about the work that we do at foreignpolicy.ca. Um, so our organization is funded entirely through donations. So please consider donating or becoming a sustainer member, which you can do at foreignpolicy.ca slash donate. And as, so the reason why we're holding this event today is part of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute's call for a fundamental reassessment of Canadian foreign policy um, included a question that we posed, which was, should Canada continue to be a part of NATO or instead pursue non-military paths to power in the world. If we're serious about having a foreign policy that's based on peace, human rights, uh, and overcoming global inequities, the answer is clear. According to milita military historian, Jack Granitstein, NATO is the alliance to which Canada has devoted perhaps 90% of its military efforts since 1949. So before we begin, I just want to talk about some of NATO's intense and lesser known history. 72 years ago to tomorrow, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization officially came into existence. A year before its inception, the US, UK and Canada held initial private meetings to found the Alliance. And two of the main reasons for establishing NATO, in a nutshell, weakening left-wing forces in post-war Europe and strengthening the US empire. During World War II, the rich and the powerful, as well as the church who had supported the fascists were now discredited. And the communist parties were becoming very popular in Greece and Italy and France in the late 40s. Uh, tens of thousands of American troops were stationed in Western Europe as part of NATO to blunt the possible rise of domestic communist parties. In March, 1949, uh, our then Canadian external minister, Lester Pearson, was very open about this element of NATO and said the following in the House of Commons. He said, the power of the communists, wherever that power flourishes, depends upon their availability to suppress and destroy the free institutions that stand against them. They pick them off one by one, the political parties, the trade unions, the churches, the schools, the universities, the trade associations, even the sporting clubs and the kindergartens. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization is meant to be a declaration to the world that this kind of conquest from within will not in the future take place amongst us." Close quote. The second main motivation for NATO was to reinforce the European colonial system and bring it under the US orbit. So to maintain their colonies, European powers increasingly depended upon the North American diplomatic and financial 
assistance. Between 1950 and 1958, Canada donated a whopping $1.5 billion, which in today's terms is, is $8 billion in ammunition, in fighter jets, in military training, and more to European countries through NATO's mutual aid program. So while European powers, and all this while European powers were suppressing independent, independence movements in Algeria, in Kenya, in Vietnam, and in Congo, among other places. So this is a very, very important history to consider as we mark NATO's anniversary, and Canada's involvement with the Alliance. And so without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our first guest, Margaret Kimberly. I'm so excited to have you here, Margaret. Margaret Kimberly is a co-founder and editor and senior columnist for the Black Agenda Report. She's the author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents and a contributor to the anthologies, Capitalism in a Ventilator, The Impact of COVID-19 on China and the US in defense of Julian Assange and Killing Trayvons, an anthology of American violence. Her work as an activist includes leadership roles in the Black Alliance for Peace, the United National Anti-War Coalition and the US Peace Memorial Foundation. Welcome, Margaret. Let me unmute. Hello. Thanks, everybody. Um, greetings. Uh, I thank the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute for inviting me to participate. And I thank you for joining us for this important discussion. Two years ago, on March 19, 2011, member states of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, began an aerial bombardment of the North African nation, Libya. The end result was a death toll of an estimated 50,000 people, the murder of that country's president, and a humanitarian crisis, which includes slavery and the deaths of migrants using Libya as an embarkation point for Europe. Ten years later, Libya is in the midst of a civil war and still has no functioning government. This is but one example of the dangers of NATO, which is little more than a cartel carrying out acts of aggression around the world. NATO is the primary tool of the Atlanticist hegemon and therefore poses a great danger. The title of the webinar, Why Canada Should Leave NATO, but I'm not Canadian, I'm a USian, if you will. I try not to say American because that encompasses the entire hemisphere. Uh, the US is the creator of NATO, the driving force behind its formation during the days of the Cold War. For the first half of my life, I was taught that NATO was a necessary counterweight to the Soviet bloc, Warsaw Pact. And I was told that this evil empire was devoted to destroying me and my way of life. Of course, the Soviet Union ceased to exist 30 years ago. The Russian Federation is no longer socialist and the other members of the Warsaw Pact now belong to NATO. Those groundbreaking changes proved to me that I had been lied to about the threat of the Soviet Union, which collapsed relatively quickly and which lost its influence over Eastern Europe. NATO literally has no reason to exist, or rather I should say that its reason for existing is not what we have been told for the last 72 years. The idea that NATO is a benevolent entity and that any other alliance is therefore bad is a trope of propaganda, but unfortunately is accepted all too often. often. When Donald Trump questioned America's role in NATO, that is to say the amount this country spends on defense as opposed to other countries, he was called a traitor and a Kremlin dupe, et cetera. 
but his goal was to make other nations spend more on defense and being the good vassals that they are, they did as the president said they should. Of course, that means that they spend less money on the well-being of their citizens. Just one problem with this alliance that acts against the interests of millions of people. The United States is like every other empire in history and needs puppet governments and vassal states to help do its bidding. It was funny to watch leaders who allegedly didn't like Trump do exactly what he wanted, whether it was spending more on defense or proclaiming Juan Guaido interim president of Venezuela or arresting a Huawei executive under dubious legal authority or occupying Haiti. They work hand in hand and the pretext of doing so for the good side is usually what is expressed. Yes, Canada should leave NATO. Everyone should leave NATO because the very structure is necessary only to accomplish evil ends. People in Canada, the US and every other NATO member should state should seek to dismantle the entire scheme because of the terrible suffering it has caused. Let's look at Syria a country that has been devastated by 10 years of war. The same jihadist proxies used by NATO nations to conquer Libya went on to do more damage to Syria. Because of the, uh, the nation that we're told is evil, Russia, the jihadists were defeated militarily and Syria might have had a chance to rebuild. But the losing NATO nations were insistent on destroying the Syrian government. They've all bombed Syria at various times and in 2018 under very suspicious circumstances claiming that the government gassed its citizens. Thankfully, whistleblowers came forward and cast doubt on the plan and may have prevented a much wider war. Now Syrians are literally going hungry because with the US in the lead, NATO members have enacted terrible sanctions. US troops and allies occupy one third of that country and steal its oil and wheat. One of the reasons that these interventions can be carried out so easily is that the US and its NATO allies have more than 800 bases and other facilities around the world. Closing them down is an essential part of ending NATO. I am a member of the United National Anti-War Coalition and the Black Alliance for Peace, and both groups are part of this closed foreign bases coalition. These facilities pollute local governments, Local communities deprive people all over, all over the world of having the input they should have with their own governments and make a mockery of claims of democracy. One such example is Ireland. Ireland is officially neutral and not a NATO member, but it supports NATO efforts through the Partnership for Peace Program and the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Council and allows the US to use its Shannon Airport as troops and materiel are transported to Middle Eastern nations. There are many activists in Ireland who are quite vocal in their opposition, but they are met with arrests and a, a determination by the state to silence them. Ireland is but one example of how NATO undoes the popular will of, in many countries. NATO is but one mechanism which ensnares people all over the world. Canada is a member of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. The UK and its settler colonial offshoots of Canada, the US, Australia, and New Zealand share intelligence information. And just a few days ago, a Canadian minister advocated that the group work more closely together in an anti-China effort. The Five Eyes work without oversight and none are transparent. No one knows who is under surveillance, why, and what information is shared internationally. 
And we see again how these alliances work against the public good. There's ominous news coming from Ukraine. NATO-led nations led the, by the US chose sides in Ukraine's internal dispute and ousted the elected president in 2014. Some of those who took power are in fact neo-Nazis. And thanks to this intervention, Ukraine is now the poorest country in Europe and in an ongoing civil war. Ukraine is not a NATO member, but acts in concert. And the troop buildup in the eastern part of that country is very troubling indeed. I will close with the story from my own country. The Trump administration signed an agreement to begin a drawdown of troops from Afghanistan, but was immediately stymied in the effort by the bipartisan war party. Now there's an additional issue created by the paying of billions of dollars in private contracts as part of the occupation process. Uh, despite the signing of the Doha agreement last Febru February that called for a drawdown of troops, the Defense Department issued nearly a billion dollars in contracts to 17 different countries related to work in Afghanistan past the withdrawal date. With the deadline approaching and no formal decision from the Biden White House, the future of the contracts remain unclear but the Pentagon could potentially have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in settlements or face years of litigation if the US pulls out of the country. Uh, this is a quote from uh, uh, CNN. If they have a billion dollars worth of contracts, they're going to have a barrel full of lawsuits on their hands unless they're willing to settle for whatever amount the contractors can ask for, said a Defense Department spoke spokesman. Now, if I said that the military industrial complex created and sustained wars and occupation, the charge would be denied. And I would be called as conspiracy theorist or some other name. But there you have it in black and white, straight from the horse's mouth. And that is the problem of NATO. It encourages war and occupations and does so on behalf of imperialist interests. Let us begin anew and end all of these alliances that kill take public access, assets and deprive millions of people of their democratic rights. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much to Margaret um, for just detailing that big picture role of NATO as a tool of US empire, war and occupation. I can't wait to hear more from you in the Q&A portion. If people have questions for Margaret, please put them in the chat. Um, so our next speaker is Ludo de Brabander. Ludo de Brabander is a Belgian activist and spokesperson for the organization Vreda VZW. He's a member of the International Co Coordination Committee of No to War, No to NATO. He was one of the organizers of the last two NATO counter summits in Brussels um, in May 2017 and July 2018. He's, he's the author of several books on NATO, militarization, the Middle East, and the Kurdish issue, and travels regularly through the Middle East and writes in various printed and electronic publications. Welcome, Ludo. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Bianca. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my views on NATO and the impl implications of its policies for member states. So in my contribution, I would like to focus on a very important report that has uh, recently, recently uh, published uh, under the title NATO 2030 United for a New Era. It has been published last December by a 10-member group of uh, so-called experts 
and at the request of NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg. And these experts put forward 138 recommendations on how NATO should adapt for the next decade. Um, it's, uh, this report has to be discussed at the next NATO summit later this year, probably in June. I've, uh, I received the date uh, 14th of June in Brussels in my country to develop the new NATO strategy for the coming years. As usually, NATO claims to act as a security organization, but in reality, it seeks to perpetuate and strengthen the hegemonic role of the alliance. An important part of the report is dedicated to the supposed threat by Russia and China as systemic rivals. And it's written in a language very reminiscent of the Cold War. Calling Russia and China a systemic rival uh, reminds us to the uh, national um, defense uh, security um, that has been published by Jim Mattis um, in 2018, where China uh, and Russia were called uh, systemic rivals. Since 2014, uh, NATO summit declarations have devoted entire pages to the Russian danger. Although Russia is a nuclear armed state, that's true, it has a defense budget that is barely 7% of that of the NATO member states. Nevertheless, NATO cultivates exaggerated perceptions of Russian military threats. In NATO's ideological framework, there is little room for criticism on its own behavior, nor for insights that try to understand why a stated opponent reacts in a specific way. And this applies, for example, to the territorial expansion of NATO towards Russian borders. Declarations that Ukraine and Georgia, two former Soviet states, uh, could eventually become NATO member states, as it has been discussed at the Bucharest summit in 2008. Or the development of a missile shield, the deployment of NATO troops in Poland and the Baltic states on a rotational, so-called rotational basis, just to name a few. So in other words, while the report regularly warns explicitly against disinformation campaigns by Russia and China, it unsurprisingly doesn't provide any interpretation, nor does it understand the Russian perspective on the security context in Europe. The NATO report is therefore primarily an exercise in formulating its reasons for existence, essentially based on a whipped up, oversimplified enemy image. Rather new is the prominent place given to China in NATO security doctrine called a full spectrum systemic rival. China is a rising power, but you can read the reality and the nature of Chinese foreign and military policy in a more nuanced way. Unlike the US, China is not at all, a, militarily spoken, a global player. The country has only one overseas military base. The US, as Margaret has mentioned, has hundreds of them, 800 or more. Uh, the US has, for example, also 21 aircraft carriers patrolling around the world, including South China Sea, and China has two of them. NATO blames China for renewing its nuclear arsenal, but the US has by far the largest nuclear modernization program underway, worth 1,700 billion after inflation dollars, $1,700 billion. Uh, one part of this program, for example, is the, the replacement of the Minya-3 uh, um, ballistic missiles. Uh, only this, only this program only would cost 100 uh, billion of dollars for the taxpayers in the US. Um, China's nuclear arsenal is 20 times smaller than that of the US. 
And it's true, Beijing has invested heavily in recent years to modernize its military apparatus, but so have most NATO member states. China's military budget is one third of the US and less than a quarter of that of NATO. And China has experienced a number of border conflicts in recent decades, some of which have even a military dimension, but it's far from uh, the scale, the geographic and intensity scale, like the violent uh, conflicts involving US and other NATO member states and NATO itself. The report, 2030, uh, NATO 2030 report, portrays China in terms of aggression, but it's primarily about expanding economic and trade activities. What is China doing? NATO appears to want to prevent China from claiming the dominant position of the US and Europe in the world. And in other words, China is not allowed to do what NATO member states have been doing for decades. The report also chatters the illusion that NATO is serious about nuclear disarmament. And I quote uh, from the report, we also underline that NATO continues to have a critical role to play, role to play in maintaining both conventional and nuclear deterrence and defense through allied nuclear arsenals and via US forward deployments of nuclear weapons in Europe. End of quote. The experts are undoubtedly concerned about the impact of the Ban Treaty, uh, the TPNW, on NATO's nuclear posture. And that's with reason, of course, if only one member state would exceed the treaty, this could end the self-proclaimed nuclear solidarity of the alliance and erode the legitimacy of nuclear weapons possession by the alliance nuclear weapon states. In the report, the experts argue that all members should, and I quote, should recall their position on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, namely that it will never contribute to practical disarmament, nor will it affect international law. And last year in December, NATO made it clear again with a, a special briefing uh, stating that um, 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 the Ben Treaty will never become uh, international law. To conclude, there are many issues in the report that NATO addresses with one-sided militaristic approaches or as a way to expand its influence. Since 2014, NATO obliges member states to further increase military budgets and investments. So everybody knows probably that all countries should spend according to NATO 2% of their BBP on defense and 20% of their military budgets should be used for military investments. It continues to do so despite COVID-19 uh, pandemic. The military budget of all NATO states increased from 896 billion to 1,028 billion dollars between 2014 and 2020. And according to the latest NATO figures last month, for example, Canada saw a real increase of military expenditure of almost 45% since 2014. There are countries that more than doubled their military budgets in only six years. To give you a few, Hungary, 147%, Lithuania, 180%, Latvia, 171%, Slovakia, 122%. So in other words, NATO prevents individual member states from choosing disarmament, denuclearization, political dialogue, and common and cooperative security. It ignores the root causes of conflict and chooses militaristic approaches without even considering its own role in creating insecurity. In fact, it's the most important insecurity organization in the world. 
just an example, NATO member states are responsible for two thirds of the global arms trade with warring countries such as Saudi Arabia as top destinations. Or the war in Iraq 2003 and Libya 2011 caused regional instability in the Middle East and the Sahel and created the breeding ground for extremist armed groups. NATO 2030 will be translated, as I said, in a new security doctrine to be endorsed in the next NATO summit in Brussels later this year. It's a recipe for encouraging a new Cold War 2.0. Uh, arms race and more wars. In short, the report proves again that NATO is an instrument of the military industrial complex endangering human security and a just and peaceful world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ludo. Thank you for your comments. Um, thank you for uh, helping us to understand how this is not a defensive alliance, as well as the implications for disarmament, nuclear and otherwise. And I would like to encourage folks at home to take a look to the take a look at the report that Ludo referenced. It's called NATO 2030: United for a, a New Era. So I'm looking very forward to hearing more from you during the Q and A period. You're listening to Why Canada Should Leave NATO, a panel discussion, which took place April 3rd, 2021. Conducted by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, this program is a feature on the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is also broadcast on other community radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. Here again is more of this conversation. Our next speaker is Tamara Lorenz. Tamara Lorenz is a PhD candidate at the Balsillie School for International Affairs. She's a member of the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, the Canadian Pugwash Group, and the No to NATO Network. Tamara is also on the International Advisory Council of World Beyond War and the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. She's also a fellow of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. Uh, welcome, Tamara. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to pick up on something that Margaret said. The United States has always dominated and dictated NATO. The supreme allied commander of the NATO armed forces has always been an, an American general. The first supreme allied commander of NATO was General Dwight Eisenhower, who of course later became president and warned in his farewell address against the military industrial complex. On Ludo's discussion about NATO 2030, I wanna add that if NATO 2030 comes to pass, if we don't stop it, the international community cannot prevent catastrophic climate change and the international community cannot achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. We simply cannot sustain NATO's costly and carbon intensive militarism over the next decade and achieve these goals. NATO is militarizing Canadian foreign policy and it is weaponizing the women, peace and security agenda. Right now, Canada is training Iraqi police as part of um, a NATO operation, which is helping um, the United States occupy Iraq. 
Canada has 540 soldiers in Latvia leading a NATO battle group. Canada has fighter jets in Romania and warships in the Mediterranean and Black Sea on NATO operations. Right now, Canada is leading a NATO maritime uh, uh, group. And, but by contrast, Canada only has 42 soldiers on UN peacekeeping missions. Canada is not a peacekeeping country. Because of NATO, we are a war-making country. But I want to go back and quickly talk about why NATO has expanded since the end of the Cold War. In 1992, when the Warsaw Pact ended, there was no longer a, justi a justification for the alliance and for high military spending. Yet NATO expanded. Since 1992, membership has doubled. 14 new countries have joined the alliance. Why did NATO expand? Why did it not uh, disband? The key architect of NATO expansion in the mid 1990s was an American, Bruce Jackson, who was the vice president of strategic planning for Lockheed Martin, the largest weapons manufacturer in the United States. He formed and led the US Committee to Expand NATO. Jackson traveled with the CEO of Lockheed Martin, Norm Augustine, to Eastern European countries to convince them to join the Transatlantic Alliance. Then back in the United States, Jackson and Augustine wined and dined senators and pushed them to support NATO expansion. One of the staunchest supporters of the alliance in the Senate during this period was Senator Joe Biden. In 1998, the Senate voted overwhelmingly to approve Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic as new members of the alliance. But ironically, that same year, the Senate voted to reject the United States from joining the Kyoto Protocol. Then Jackson and Augustine pressured the US government to give loan guarantees to these Eastern European countries to buy US weapons. The committee to expand NATO then evolved into the project on trans, uh, transitional democracies, still headed by Bruce Jackson. In the early 2000s, the project on transitional democracies lobbied the US government to, to admit more members into, into NATO. Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Now to become a member of the alliance, countries have to meet certain political, economic, and military conditions. They have to move towards um, a free market economy, and they have to modernize their militaries to be interoperable uh, with NATO allies. This is why US weapons manufacturers love NATO. It's a guaranteed market for their weapons. This is why Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics are big funders of the NATO Association of Canada which has its office in Toronto. The NATO Association of Canada is the propaganda arm of the alliance in this country. Now think about this. Um, in 2011, it was a Canadian Lieutenant General, Charles Bouchard, who led the NATO bombing of Libya. Two years after he retired, Bouchard became head of Lockheed Martin Canada. Lockheed and other US weapons manufacturers spend a lot of money to hire lobbyists and consultants in this country to secure lucrative 
uh, defense contracts and keep military spending high. So no wonder now Canada has a competition to buy 88 new fighter jets for a life cycle cost of $77 billion. And Canada is in the process of building 15 warships for a life cycle cost of $268 billion. And two years ago, the Liberal government gave a sole source contract to General Dynamics to build uh, new tanks for $3 billion. Um, these are things we don't need. They're totally unproductive, but the federal government says we need them to meet our NATO commitments. These weapon systems, though, are extremely carbon intensive. This is why I have argued that NATO is one of the greatest threats and uh, th greatest threats to the to uh, the climate and one of the biggest obstacles to the Paris Agreement. And it's gonna get worse. In 2014, um, at the Whale Summit, NATO members made a commitment to spend 2% of GDP for defense. And of that amount, 20% for weapons systems. Last month, NATO released its defense expenditures report, which showed that Canada's military spending in 2020 was $30.8 billion, but that's only 1.4% of GDP. By contrast, last year, the Canadian government spent only $2 billion on global affairs, $1.9 billion on the Department of Environment and Climate Change, $2 billion on Indigenous services. So we are spending 15 times more on the military than we do on defense, uh, sorry, than we do on diplomacy, environment, or Indigenous communities. Three years ago, the House of Commons Standing Committee on Defense released a report entitled Canada and NATO, an alliance forged in strength and reliability. The 2018 report recommended that Canada increase military spending to meet our NATO 2% target and to increase public education so that Canadians support the alliance. The committee chair was Liberal MP, Liberal Member of Parliament, Stephen Fuhr, a former NATO qualified fighter pilot for the Canadian Armed Forces. And the vice chair of the committee was NDP MP, Randall Garrison, for the past 30 years, since the end of the Cold War, the NDP has sided with NATO. The NDP supported the NATO bombing of Serbia in 1999, and the NDP unanimously supported the extension of Canada's bombing of Libya in 2011. The NDP was the official opposition at the time. The NDP MPs who voted for this motion included Peter Julian, Libby Davies, Megan Leslie, Charlie Angus, Jean Crowder, and Nikki Ashton. After the vote, Prime Minister Stephen Harper crossed the floor and he shook hands with the NDP leader, Thomas Mulcair. The only MP who voted against the motion was Elizabeth May of the Green Party. However, the Green Party does not oppose NATO, which means it supports it. The NDP definitely supports NATO. That's very clear from its voting record and from the statements of its defense critic, Randall Garrison. And right now, there are at least three NDP MPs on the Canada-NATO Parliamentary Association, including Garrison, Jack Harris, and Daniel Blakey. But the NDP and the Green Party, they can't be serious about uh, tackling the climate crisis or tackling the poverty crisis if they continue to support NATO. 
and its demands for increased military spending and new fossil fuel powered weapon systems. The NDP and the Green Party also can't be serious about their support for nuclear disarmament if they do not call for Canada to get out of a nuclear armed alliance. Canada is shamefully not joining the new landmark treaty to abolish nuclear weapons. These are the worst weapons of mass destruction for which there is no humanitarian response because of our membership in NATO. Finally, I want to stress that um, most of the world is not in NATO. Of the 193 countries that are part of the United Nations, only 30 in NATO. There are countries like Austria and Mexico that are not members of NATO because of their commitments to neutrality. And these two countries you know, led the negotiations on the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Um, so in conclusion, I would like to say that NATO circumvents the United Nations Security Council, NATO undermines the United Nations, NATO's so-called so -called rules-based order undermines international law. So it is an, a, an imperative for us to build a national resistance to NATO. We need to delegitimize uh, the alliance. We need to change the uh, political and public discourse in this country that says that NATO provides security. NATO has proven in this pandemic that it is totally uh, it is it is totally useless to meet the real human security challenges that we're facing and it is exacerbating the climate crisis. So I say Canada should get out of NATO. No to NATO. Thanks. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you so much for that passionate and comprehensive description of NATO's impact on promoting militarism in Canada, as well as impacts on the SDGs, climate targets, nuclear disarmament, and more. Can't wait to hear more from you during the Q&A. Our next speaker of the, of the afternoon is Paul Robinson. Paul Robinson holds an MA in Russian and Eastern European Studies from the University of Toronto and a Doctor of Philosophy in Modern History from the University of Oxford. Prior to his graduate studies, he served as a regular officer in the British Army Intelligence Corps from 1989 to 1994, and, it was, and, and as a reserve officer in the Canadian Forces from 94 to 96. Having published six books, he's also written widely for the international press on political issues. His research, his research focuses generally on military affairs. In recent years, he has worked on Russian history, military history, defense policy, and military ethics. Welcome, Paul. Yeah, thank you, uh, uh, Bianca, um, for having me. Um, you know, I think it, it's quite natural for, for states and for peoples to want to play some sort of role in the world beyond you know, their own borders and, and to do something which is more than just a um, sort of naked pursuit of national interest and, and also to, to feel that they matter in some way. And, and if you're, you know, if you're United States or perhaps China or Russia, this is something you could perhaps do on your own, but, but most states aren't, aren't capable of doing this. And therefore, um, in, in order to, to get this feeling of mattering and, and to have a sense of having status and influence, you, you need to be part of some, some larger, larger whole. And it's natural as well then to seek to do this within some sort of community of states with which you um, feel you have something in common. And for this sense, I mean, Canada's membership of NATO has been in, in a way quite logical because it, it, it's a way that Canadians have felt that they can enhance their country's reputation um, among the states which matter to them, as to say other, other liberal democracies. Um, however, um, while, while this is, is quite 
understandable. I think one needs to balance this uh, desire for sort of influence and, and status with some sort of more utilitarian um, understanding of whether um, what you're doing is actually doing any good either to yourself or, or, or to, the, to the broader community. Um, one, one could take an example, for instance, of, of uh, Canada's uh, military campaign in Afghanistan. Clearly, um, many Canadians supported this because we felt that this was in some way um, supposed to be doing some good, but also it was a way of um, you know, winning influence and status uh, within the NATO alliance. And supposedly that was of some sort of benefit to us as a nation. But then if you ask, well, what did we actually achieve? You have to answer, well, absolutely nothing. Um, and 150 Canadians lost their lives essentially uh, for no um, for no benefit. Whereas these sort of uh, sense of belonging or whatever we get from it is, is very intangible. And I think that's really the sort of way, if we're discussing NATO, we need to look into this. You know, uh, is NATO actually the best way um, for a state such as Canada to uh, achieve this sort of sense of identity and, and belonging in the world that, uh, that we are after. And, um, you know, increasingly, I mean, in my younger days, I, I, you know, I was an army officer in NATO forces in, in what was then West Germany. And, and um, it seemed very logical to me to do this, but as time has gone on, I've become increasingly skeptical um, of this. And particularly because I'm, I'm a student of Russia um, and therefore I think it's worth spending some time looking um, at what effect uh, NATO has had on, on Russia and, and Russia's world in the world and, and, and conflict between um, East um, and West. Now, now back in the Cold War, NATO uh, made some sort of sense um, in terms of uh, deterring um, any Soviet attack. Whether the Soviets actually ever intended to attack is, is in a sense neither here nor there. We, we, we could never be entirely sure. Um, and there was a certain logic in, in a sort of better safe than, than sorry um, strategy. But of course, the Soviet threat is, is long gone and modern day Russia for all its, its many um, deficiencies is not remotely like the Soviet Union. And people who attempt to tell you that it's some sort of modern totalitarian state um, simply don't know what they're talking about. And, and, and Russia's military capabilities, despite recent headlines saying that you know, they, they could smash the British army and so on, um, are, are, are not what they're made out to be uh, either. And certainly nothing compared with the, the, the Soviet capabilities. Um, but um, there's something more, I think, important, um, which has happened than just sort of the military dimension here. There's a sort of certain psychological dimension um, um, which results from uh, NATO's existence. And I was reading last week a book about Soviet reformers. And these were, these were members of the Communist Party in, in the late Soviet era, who then were became um, sort of part of uh, Gorbachev's inner circle and, and were the people who, who led to the reforms of Perestroika and Glasnost and ultimately the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and what drove these people was very much um, a sense of a European identity and a desire to be reintegrated into the European family um, and construct what, what Gorbachev himself called a, a common European home. And it was this um, desire essentially to, to be at one with the West and to fulfill this Western identity or European identity more, more narrowly um, that, that drove them. But it didn't, it didn't work out for them um, because Russia has not become a part of the West. And, and why is this? Well, the reason is essentially because once 
the West was a sort of idea. It wasn't, you know, there was no thing called the West. In fact, you know, it's, it, it's, it was a sort of concept, right? And you could believe in this concept and be part of it. But what has happened since the collapse of the Soviet Union is that the West has become institutionalized. Uh, really through the European Union and, and, and through NATO. And it's been institutionalized in such a way that Russia cannot be part of it. Which means that however much you may have an aspiration to be European, if you are Russian, you never can be. Because institutional barriers have been created, which means it is by necessity um, impossible. Um, so for instance, if you look back to say the 18th and 19th century, at that point, Europe was, um, it was not one thing, right? So there, Russia was part of Europe because it was always um, part of some alliance, one, one time with the French, another time with the English, another time with the Germans. The alliances sort of came and went, right? But there was never a sort of thing of all of, Ru all of Europe against Russia. Russia was part of a European system of alliances. Now this um, broke down really at the end of the Second World War when uh, the Cold War put Western Europe against um, Eastern Europe. Um, but there was hope that when um, the war came down in 1989, um, Russia could then be reintegrated um, within this common uh, European home. But that's not actually uh, what happened because the expansion of the European Union and NATO has created a situation in which essentially um, this institutionalized West has moved eastwards up until Russia's borders and then drawn a line. And divided the European continent into two, Europe and Russia, and created a situation in, Russia, in which Russia cannot be part of Europe. This therefore removes any of those incentives which previously existed for um, people within Russia to be part of the West. There's no reason for them to um, reform themselves to abide by what we would call Western norms because they, they're not going to be accepted into the club regardless. Um, and there's no particular reason for them to um, uh, modify their conception of their national interests um, to satisfy uh, NATO or the EU because they're not gonna be part of Europe, whatever come what's may. They've been institutionally, okay, cut off from the rest of the European continent. Um, and this, I think, is basically, therefore, institutionalizing conflict. And this is what the effect of, of the expansion of, of not just NATO, but also the European Union um, has had. It's essentially institutionalized conflict between Russia um, and the rest of, of Europe. Um, now, NATO says that Russians shouldn't be worried by expansion because NATO is a, is a defensive alliance. Now, this is true to the extent that I think NATO um, has no intentions of militarily attacking Russia. It would be suicidal uh, to do so. Um, however, um, the idea that NATO is a defensive alliance is not one that um, you know, anyone but a handful of Russians would take seriously. Uh, following the uh, war on uh, Kosovo, um, the invasion of Iraq, um, in which many NATO countries took part, um, the bombing of Libya, um, and so on, um, you know, Russians do not regard NATO as a defensive alliance in any way, shape or form. Uh, and it doesn't really matter whether they're right or wrong, so to think. NATO says, well, they're wrong to think that, so why should we pay any attention to it? Well, it doesn't really matter if they're right or wrong to think about it. They do think that. They, they regard NATO as an expansionist and aggressive uh, institution um, and as one which they need to take measures against, um, essentially, um, 
well, just in case, just, just as NATO sort of needed to exist just in case the Soviets attacked uh, back in the Cold War, the Russians similarly feel that they need to do things just in case um, themselves. Um, so Latvia, for instance, is 6,500 miles away from um, Ottawa, where I am right now. Um, it's zero miles from uh, the Russian Federation because um, it's right next door. Okay? Canada has sent troops 6,500 miles to Russian border, Russia's border. Russia has not sent any troops 6,500 kilometers to, to our border. So from a Russian perspective, who is threatening who? And when NATO says, you know, Russia um, is a threat, but it's us who sent, 6, 000, sent troops 6,000 kilometers to their border, yeah, it's unrealistic essentially to think that they will um, take it seriously, but, you know, we are not threatening them in any way, uh, shape or form. Um, and of course, similarly, uh, the support um, Canada and other NATO states have given for the post-Maidan revolution government in Ukraine um, and uh, for the actions taken by the Ukrainian army um, in Donbass, which has resulted in the, the deaths of, of many thousands of people, uh, similarly are seen by, by Russians uh, as uh, signs of essentially um, uh, ill intent. Now, um, what can one conclude from this? Well, I think from one can conclude from this that um, NATO um, is not actually helping um, provide security in Europe um, because it is institutionalizing conflict between uh, Europe and Russia uh, and it is creating a, a sense of, of insecurity. Um, that may not be intentional, but that is the ultimate effect. Does that mean then that Canada should, should leave NATO? Well, of course, if Canada alone was to leave NATO, nothing would change because this institutional division of Europe I've spoken about would, would still exist. So um, essentially Canada leaving NATO would, would you know, perhaps have some benefits for Canada in terms of enabling us to cut our, our defense expenditure, um, but it wouldn't resolve the, the more fundamental problems which, which come about as a result of, of NATO's continued existence. Um, I think you know, what we need to be thinking of is, is more about what, you know, new forms of security architecture can be created um, for the North Atlantic and, and, and European region. Okay, um, and that requires some degree of, of new thinking as, as, as Gorbachev called it back then, except of course now it requires new thinking from us uh, really uh, rather than um, from them. What, what that would be of course is something um, for a future discussion, but for now I'll leave it at, at that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much, Paul. Uh, thank you for sharing this critical information about the impact of NATO on Russia, the false geographic divide and uh, the institutionalization of the West and the institutionalization of conflict. So that concludes our presentations for today. And we're now going to be moving into the Q&A portion of our evening. Thank you to the many, many of you that uh, have shared questions with us in the Q&A box. Um, so the first uh, two questions I'm gonna ask together is they're similar and these are for all panelists. Uh, please feel free to jump in. Garth asks, can Canada sign the nuclear non-proliferation ban while still in NATO? And Richard Denton asks, should Canada work within NATO to get rid of its nuclear doctrine or leave NATO and then not have any influence? Over to you, panelists. Well, I'll start and just say that for at least 40 years, 
the argument has been made that Canada should work within NATO to um, reduce its alliance on nuclear weapons or to get rid of its nuclear deterrence. And Canada has never been able to do that. And Canada really isn't interested in, in doing that. It is unrealistic to think that Canada with a defense budget of $30 billion um, taking on um, the nuclear armed uh, NATO allies, the United States, the United Kingdom and France to give up their nuclear weapons. It's just not going to happen. And the other thing is, it's unrealistic to think that NATO is ever going to get rid of its nuclear weapons. NATO uh, uh, nuclear weapons have been part of uh, NATO's weapon systems, its fundamental capability since its, since its inception in uh, 1949. And as you heard from Ludo, all of the nuclear armed uh, NATO allies are modernizing their, their arsenals. And, um, and so uh, uh, Canada just is not going to be able to change um, NATO's reliance on its nuclear deterrence. Uh, so I think really the, the, the only genuine option is for Canada uh, to get out of NATO because you know we should be so outraged and so opposed to nuclear weapons. I mean, th these are the worst weapons of mass destruction. So, um, you know, as I said, Canada should get out of NATO if we're serious about nuclear disarmament. You just heard a panel discussion on why Canada should leave NATO. Featured on the panel were Margaret Kimberly from the Black Alliance for Peace, Professor Paul Robinson from the University of Ottawa, Belgian peace activist Ludo de Brabander, and scholar Tamara Lorenz of Canadian Voice of Women for Peace. It was presented on April 3, 2021 and it was a production of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. You can find out more about the organization by visiting the site foreignpolicy.ca. You've been tuned to the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show airs on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and are available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on our show, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music for this week's broadcast is Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music, accessible on the site purple-planet.com. I've been your host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.